Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome to Be Real, guys, everyone. Thanks for being with us on this day and tuning in while we talk about movies. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chance Solom Pfeiffer. I'm Noah Ballard, coming in uh, from the East Coast. Chance, yeah. where, are you, where are you these days? The West Coast. It's our first... Uh, is this really the first in- Portland pod? Yeah. This is the first really inconveniently timed three-hour time difference podcast. Yeah. Um, and we seem to have scheduled it without uh, too much trouble. So yeah. seemed good fine. Good for us. Good for us. So Chance, it's- how was how has been the past you know week in uh, Portland, Oregon? It's been fine, man. It's been a blur. Uh, I don't really know. I don't really know what happened. We got here and then tried to make a home as quickly as possible by propping up like a, a rucksack on two sticks. And uh, you made yourself a lean-to. I respect that. There it is. Thank you. Um, tell me of your life. I'm pretty good. Had a had a raucous weekend up in the Poconos with uh, some of my high school and college friends. Yeah, that looks so great. Was, yeah, so that was fun. Um, I'm, I'm tomorrow will be two weeks uh, no smoking. Chance, be proud of me. Really? Yeah, I've been chewing the gum like a fiend. Uh, uh, I'm torn about that, you know. Why? Oh, because you like you. You feel like that's the best version of me. I feel like what comes along with it. I feel like it's uh, tied together. But of course, I wish the best for you and your health and your goals. So right, chomp, chomp away. Just well, not into the people mic. People seem to be people seem to be torn on it. Um, the lady says that I'm uh, a lot calmer, um, and my coworkers seem to be afraid to approach me. So <laughs> it's a uh, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, like serial killer calm. Like, what do we got working? Yeah, it might be just like deathly silent. Um, right. No, I think I've. I think I'm okay. I think I'll pull through this one. Should we uh, get into this? Let's talk about you know the main event. Let's get to the reason everybody skips the first ten minutes of uh, the podcast. Um, we so on. Be real, guys. Our movie podcast. We take three movies of a similar genre and we rate them. Not on box office success or critical acclaim, never, but on their inherent Saturday afternoon watchability. Well, that's you, but always, yeah. I think that's both of us. So this week, our genre was, we're making a movie, guys. And it's three movies about making movies. Yeah. And so we covered uh, the more recent one. um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> None of these are we should say this is a as if you're a movie person, we are sure in a real dead spot right now for good movies coming out. Um Yeah, so we went to an this is more of an evergreen genre. Yeah, just like last week, I suppose. Or I guess that one had a, a Netflix recently released movie in it. But right. in October we'll head back into the theaters, but we're going evergreen right now. It's pretty bleak in there right now, guys. Yeah. So so we did 2008's Tropic Thunder, uh, 2002's Hollywood Ending, and 2000's State and Maine. Mm-hmm. 
celebration of the arts today. Yes. Do we want to remind people how that uh, that rating system works? Should it's we do that? It's pretty simple. Yeah, it's sort of a Punnett square, if you mm. will, of uh, two gradients. Uh, how good the movie, or what the production value is of the movie, how well it's made, how well it's constructed, both like in a technical and in a narrative sense. And then the second one is, well, how 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 likely am I to like want to like sit through all of this and like enjoy myself, regardless of like what the quality is? Good, good would be like uh, the Departed, and like good, bad would be like Requiem for a Dream, Schindler's List, a movie you don't want to sit through more than once, but is you know you but it's good, it's, it's an well award made. winner, or it did sure. something visually that was you know new. Sure. And then Bad Good. Uh, Bad Good would be like many Kurt Russell movies. Many, um, many, many. Yeah. Something you could just... Or Executive Decision being being a great example. Choice among them. And then Bad Bad uh, fulfills neither category. A yeah, movie... that's, like a, that's like a white chicks or a pootie tang. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've actually never seen pootie tang. It might be great. Nor have I. <laughs> Or, or your your white chickses, your howlses. Yeah, yeah. Well, this kind of brings us conveniently into uh, today's brought to you by. So, may I chance? How about it? Be real, guys. Is brought to you today by movie trailers. Do you want to basically spoil the exposition of a film you're probably not gonna watch? Just watch the trailer. Want to get a sense of the aesthetics of the Ter- of Terrence Malick's latest movie without being stuck in a theater for two hours watching random images flash in front of your face? Just watch the trailer. Do you want to say that you've seen all the Oscar movies without, you know, seeing seeing them? Just watch the trailer. That'll give you a sense of the major beats of the narrative. And wait, there's more. If you're watching the latest trailers at a Sundance, you're bound to hear this year's Ho Hey or Chicago. All things go, my friend. And nothing solidifies a baseless prejudice of a movie quite like the trailer. So why not watch the official promo for Bridge of Spies and tell me you're not a little nervous about that shit? Movie trailers. Because even if the twist was ruined, at least you went in with expectations. Do you want to start with Tropic Thunder? Does that work all right by you? Yeah, let's 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 get into it. So Tropic Thunder... Yeah. Which begins with... Movie fake trailers. trailers of the fake actors who are in this movie. Um, which, did you see this in theaters, by the I way? I did. I never did, and I wondered if it was, like, super weird for, like, the trailers to essentially well, see, like, start over. Well, have you seen... Um, you, you, have you seen this before that we watched it for the podcast? No, I never had. Oh, so this is your first time watching it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I remember distinctly when I saw it in the theaters. Um, I think I was in college, and when we saw it at the what was it, the Grand, uh, in Lincoln, they didn't like play the little thing where you see it separating. Like now, like now, here's our like main attraction or oh. feature presentation. They just went right into it. So that's especially confusing. So, but you kind of figure it out. There was like a little gap and then you tell by that you can tell by like the green cards that they're not like something's right. amiss. So there are like little uh 
Yeah, but I remember seeing it, and the joke was really funny. But, like, having seen it again, the joke's not that funny. Right. <laughs> seems very uh, seems very DVD era to me. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, can we cut? <laughs> Jamie, can we cut? What is going on here? I am about to jump off this, this helicopter like Wesley Snipes. I'm doing the scene right now. I'm the scene is about emotionality. Where is it? I would say that this movie is about the production of this sort of, like, very cliche Vietnam War movie. Sure. And so basically, they're shooting this movie and things are not going well. There's no chemistry between the cast. Like, they're already, like, uh, according to the film, they're already a month behind schedule, five days into shooting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they decide to change up the way they're going to shoot the movie and just shoot it guerrilla style, like, in the woods, but once they arrive away from the safety of this, like, very controlled set, like, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, because they're shooting on location. Right, and they're in Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. But, they but it leave. is the present day. It is the present, or it was 2008. Right. <laughs> right. Um, it's very 2008. That's really true. Like, the TiVo, that whole plot is, like, the most 2008 thing. <laughs> Get him some kind of digital recording device. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's like a it's it's like a Rambo meets Platoon sort of movie, because there is, like, that really overwrought dramatic element to the otherwise, like, crazy... The fake movie you're talking muscled about. Up, yeah, muscled-up action movie. Sorry, yeah, we'll, we might run into this a few times. The fake movie is kind of a Rambo meets Platoon. Our characters, real quick, uh, Tug Speedman, played by Ben Stiller, who co-wrote and directed this thing. He's sort of, fair to call him, like a kind of a franchise, leech, sort of a Stallone sort of thing. Yeah, he's, he's the, like he's a the Rambo. Yeah. A Seagal, a Latter-day Seagal or Van Damme. Um, <laughs> Latter-day Seagal. <laughs> it's too bad I've named all my fantasy football teams this year. God damn it. That's funny. Um, but yeah, and he is like desperate for work. Well, they, they all are kind of like in this position where their careers are at a rocky moment, all the actors that we follow in this film. Right. Um, so yeah, he is known for action movies and then he made this one in like one really like critically and commercially a bad, bad movie, if you will, Yes. where he portrayed a, um, mentally handicapped boy, but like as far as one can play it. Yes. Simple Jack was the name of that movie. Simple Jack. Yeah. (laughs) And his portrayal involves stuttering and otherwise just not saying words particularly clearly. Right. So uh, he was critically destroyed, and this is like his last shot. So he's really like gung ho about shooting in the wild. And he's acting across from Kirk Lazarus, played by Robert Downey Jr., who's sort of like a Daniel Day Lewis yep. method type guy. But like, if if that person was still really kind of not like DDL, but like really Hollywood vain. Um, right. and just sort of like off his rocker with how far he's going into this because, yeah. uh, Kirk Lazarus is playing the Vietnam units captain <laughs> in, in like surgical blackface, um, in right. semi-permanent blackface. Right. And, and he's, he's Australian. Also, and he's also affecting, um, this like a- accent that's so like, again, like so over the top racists 
yeah. like, like stereotype of like a wise black guy from a movie about Vietnam. It's pretty bad. Right. Um, so, and he is consistently lambasted by um, this R&B rap star who, <laughs> like is an R. Kelly type, if you will, right. who's also in the film trying to make his acting debut and also launch his line of uh, edibles called, yeah. it's an energy drink called Booty Sweat. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, this is so much setup. And then Jay Baruchel is sort of your... Uh, uh, wants to live but will probably die like big thick rimmed glasses guy in yeah the he's, like, he's like well he's sort of playing his own role which is like character actor that like no one can really name but is in all these movies right so and then jack black who's playing oh, yeah. sort of like an eddie Mur- a latter-day eddie murphy type Totally. Where his his comedy career while once revered is now like maybe he's like an adam sandler the action guy who left the fridge open the award winner critically acclaimed australian actor kirk lazarus underwent a controversial procedure in order to play the platoon's african-american sergeant i know who i am i'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude this movie is like part part spoof but also like part comedy of errors type thing but i think it's main com it's weird to me i think it ditches it's like main comedy of error like halfway through because ben stiller thinks that well okay so steve coogan's directing the movie this is like first 15 minutes right Uh, takes him out of the middle of nowhere steps on a landmine blown to pieces right um and stiller thinks that like this is coogan and the film crew like trying to put them putting them in a method position and like you got to fight your way out of here and like the cameras are in the trees sort of and like this very real situation he thinks is a movie um and that's the truman show yeah (laughs) we're doing a lot of we're doing some meta stuff recently but um yeah uh but it really only follows that for i would say like 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, and this is a two hour and 10 minute movie. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It kind of, it, it ditches, it ditches that one. I would say right. to the point where at the end, then it's just like these actors using what they're good at to fight um, who they think, I guess, are would, would be Viet Cong in the, in the actual movie but are just right. uh, Vietnamese, like, drug lords. Well, they're, like, uh, Laos drug cartel or Laotian. something. Okay. Yeah. Well, because they, they walk so far that they leave Vietnam. But, yeah. Sure. But, yeah, well, that's... We're kind of getting into, like, my issue with the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those movies where it has that sort of, like, Christopher Nolan effect, I feel. Like, when you see it for the first time, you walk out, and for about 15 minutes, you're like, man, that was cool. And then, like, you hit, like, the brisk autumn uh, air of <laughs> Union Square, and you hit about 6th Avenue, walking towards the path at uh, 16th and 14th, or 6th and 14th, uh, heading back to Jersey City, and you're just like, wait a minute. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And so I feel like this movie is similar in that, I mean, it, it's just like all over the place and it's cool, but I don't, it's so premise heavy Yeah. that by the time you get to the actual thrust of the movie, it's not really like that 
funny. And but this is coming from someone who's seen it three times. Yeah. I think that analogy works because it it is kind of like candy for me. Like it's the best part of this movie for my money is watching really famous actors. We haven't even brought up Matthew McConaughey or Tom Cruise. Oh my god. Do yeah. stuff just do stuff you think that they would never do. Right. And like, you know, to a certain extent, like that can carry a movie. Tom if, Cruise in a, right. in like a bald cap and and well, that's the only thing that carries the movie, I would right. say, cuz ultimately the narrative sort of breaks down and it's just a collection of like Jack Black not wearing a lot of clothes, Ben Stiller like losing his mind, uh Robert Downey Jr. doing as many accents as he can. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just parlor tricks by the end of it. Right. I would say, if you'd allow me, I think that this movie is sort of... Well, there's... Okay, so there's this moment where it actually seems really, really deliberate on the part of this movie to put Robert Downey Jr. with Al Pacino, which is oh, the Al Pacino, rap, yeah. Yeah, the, the, rap, the, the rapper who's acting it. It's really important for them to have another black person there to like call him out on this. And like, oh, it right. happens yeah, several yeah. times um, where he's just like, dude, why are you doing this? And Kirk Lazarus is like, I don't know, can't stop or whatever. Well, to um, their credit, they figured out like the only real narrative model that you can pull off blackface. Yeah. Yeah. But and I, it's when the movie is not endorsing blackface. It's just showing you someone like fucking up with blackface. Like at a certain, like an hour in, I was kind of like, if I could have put my hands on the shoulder of the movie and been like, what are you doing? Um, And it would be like, I don't know, like I'm just going as fast as I can, like showing you a lot of big, loud, famous people. Maybe they think they're making. Exterior, rainforest, dusk, cut to a frightening jungle. Isn't a movie anymore. Well, that brings up a good point. I think this movie deals with a lot politically, but then like on a narrative level, it doesn't really deal with, it doesn't really like, change like it doesn't push the boundaries like there's so much like super gory violence in this which i Mm -hmm. think like for 2008 it's circa pineapple express is still pretty new to have this much violence in a uh, comedy and the other thing is like dealing with race and dealing with like how you know in hollywood like they'd rather i mean like you know it's it's like mickey rooney playing the asian guy in breakfast at tiffany's like mm-hmm. couldn't you have just cast a an asian person right so but i think that's and it has a lot of commentary but then like when it wraps up it really just sort of like goes for the easiest thing like oh the guy quits drugs oh the guy has like an identity crisis but realizes that who he is you know like ben stiller you know, finally having some acknowledgement for his work, but ultimately realizing it's not real. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are pretty like tried and true, like Hollywood kind of endings as it were. That's true. And I, yeah, it's all like, it's sort of like incidents where it like throws into high gear all of a sudden, but it never sustains it. My favorite one was where Cruz, um, who is a uh, studio head, sort of like a, I've written down, like kind of like a Richard Branson meets Dr. Evil type yep. thing. Um, he's talking to Matthew McConaughey, who is uh, Tug, Ben Stiller's agent. Um, and he's like trying to basically let him die. <laughs> um, and he's got that line about like, he's a white dwarf heading for a black hole. It's physics. And yeah. like, it's like, there's, it's like, that is an actual cruise monologue. I'm sure in like a mission impossible 
movie right. or like some or something that could appear in like Ned Beatty's speech from Network that we talked right. about last week. Yeah, and there's it's some really like, good writing in this. Yeah, it just it tosses like all of its weight behind these sort of little moments, yeah. but there's not much left for the stretch. Well, I feel like what saves this movie is the overarching uh, question for I think this whole week is. Yeah. Does this movie feel like it gives you an insider's look at Hollywood? Like, sure. does, do you feel like it gave you an insider's look to how a movie is made? And I feel like what saves this movie is yes, like Ben Stiller and Justin Theroux, who wrote this movie, like tipped their hand enough to like yes. give you a look into like what their life is like and did it in kind of a ballsy way. Yeah. I think that's a good, I think that's a good point for me to, to kind of, reframe that all these movies also are sort of about movie movies about making movies but also about making kind of like failed movies in their own in their own ways and so if they're made super cynically then like why do i why would i ever buy that hollywood has like an earnest opinion about its own failures because the only goal is making money and bad movies make money make money all the time i mean the moral of all these movies too is that um so out of this disastrous movie came some success. Right. Some of us might not make it back. What do you mean? Like, not on the same flight? I think, for me, I've very clearly, in my own mind, been describing a bad, good movie. Right. Do you agree? Yeah, I think it's a movie that, like I said, I've seen it three times. I didn't enjoy it. Well, I enjoyed it a bit less than the first time, at least. Um, but it was still an enjoyable experience but like i don't like once you watch it that third time and really like break down the plot and like what this movie's saying i think it's ultimately like pretty silly and stupid so if we're going backwards shall we go to hollywood ending we can do that fine by me before we get into hollywood ending because after watching it again you'd seen this before Yes. Well, oh, I, I, thought anic- you, I thought I you never had. I have an anecdote about it. Okay, go ahead. So this is actually one of the, not only the first uh, movies of Woody Allen's that I had ever seen. Oh. Um, it was like, I mean, I've seen it like many times and as a child, like fell in love with it for like no real reason. And it like made me like want to make movies. And that's what I did for like most of high school. So this movie was like a big inspiration to me back back in the day. But then I watched it with a Be Real Guy's glasses on. And I feel like things have... Uh, my opinion has changed. All right. I, I feel but like... But I just want to throw that out there. I just want you to be a little sensitive with me is really okay. what I'm asking. I will. Like, after I'm... seeing this movie, I see that it's open to criticism. <laughs> it, has, it, has some pretty, it has some pretty tough moments. It's running wide open toward the end zone, uncovered for criticism. Um. So, just give it, just give it a, just just give it a break. All right, that's this movie, good. This movie means a little something to me, and I, okay. I just wanted to communicate my feelings with you. So, so why don't you do the synopsis, Chance? So maybe you'll run out of energy. <laughs> so, two thousand two. Written and directed, words that often go together with uh, Woody Allen. And this is, I think, 
I it, it takes some qualifiers, but I think is important for um, kind of understanding it. This is the last Woody Allen movie that stars him as the first build. He is the sole focus of the story character. I he spent is some the time protagonist. Look, yeah, yeah, I spent some time looking at his filmography today. And while he's certainly in other ones to follow, this is the last one that's like, this is a movie about Woody Allen on being on camera. Um, so he plays Val Waxman, who is a film director who... I guess you could. He had early prestigious success, won a couple uh, Oscars in like what the 70s and 80s, but things went really downhill for him in the 90s to the point where he was thinking about TV movies and doing commercial work for deodorant when his ex wife and the man that she left him for, who's a film studio exec, his ex wife pitches Hal Yeager uh, on. Val directing this movie they have, which is a a period piece set in New York. And of course, everyone is really skeptical about it because Val is not only a failure, but um, an Artur, and they don't like that. And he's uh, known to be... Artur. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Difficult to work with. You don't remember that line in the movie? I do. He... uh, But he does it. He, he, He comes on to direct the movie and do you want me to get to the the so-called twist happens very later in the movie than you would think but it seems elementary you want me to go there or no i mean this movie has like a a really interesting albeit long premise i would say Uh like i think most of the movie hangs in them getting to the setup to this movie okay and then once they get to the conceit of the film, which is that on the eve that this guy is supposed to direct his comeback movie, he goes blind. Yes. Which makes it very difficult to direct a movie. And because he's got a history of being like an egomaniac and an eccentric, he thinks he'll get fired. And it turns out that he's not blind from any like physical condition. He's psychosomatically blind. Right. So he has to figure out the reason he's blind, but also go through this shoot but not being blind but not let anyone letting anyone know he's blind right I, i'm blind i'm blind <laughs> yes that he might yell that a few times yeah. um well, i can't just try you you see or you don't yeah yeah oh, i gotta get a picture when you're cold you're cold this is humiliating i'm i'm up here shooting a deodorant commercial i got two oscars you know who would be perfect to direct this? Val. He's a raving, incompetent, psychotic. Let's see. Where? Uh, why don't you dive in first? Well, so I think what made me fall in love with this movie is definitely not the premise of it. Okay. But the fact that it's built on sort of this, like, very sort of, I don't know, like, old world Hollywood thing to it. Like, I feel like the 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 sort of the curtain that um, Tropic Thunder pulled back is like, a, it's a very different curtain in this one of like True. what Hollywood looks like. And I feel like what's so if, if this movie succeeds on any level, it's just the fact that it's a charming movie. And I feel like it's version of Hollywood while like, albeit slimy is pretty like still charming in old world Hollywood. It's not so snaky like it is in uh like they're not going to let anyone die in this universe, right? And and I th- I think if I can 
add on to what I think you mean by that. It's all the execs and all like the bigwigs are only interested in movies. You know what I mean? Like there's no sense of like in Tropic Thunder or again to reference network, there's no sense that there's like an outside like corporate world with stake and some like multi-billion dollar thing that's sort of like doesn't give a shit about movies. It's all people who are like, we want this movie to be good too. We just don't understand the artistic side of movie making. Right. And I mean, and I think this galaxy pictures portrayed in this movie is not meant to be like a huge studio. Right. It's meant to be like sort of a middle, you know, like a focus features or something. Right. Which I think is funny because, and this gets just to like what Woody Allen has come to represent, which is hyperbole of his own life. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, this definitely feels like a meditation on a guy who, like, used to be an important filmmaker and I guess eventually would become an important filmmaker again when he made sort of those, like, latter movies that he's right. now occasionally doing well with, like, Blue Jasmine or Matchpoint or... Uh, well, I mean, it's true, but... but I feel like he's at a moment... You can tell from, like, the movie, this is, like, a B-side for this guy... And it's he's between albums and this is just like an EP or something. And it's charming in that Woody Allen safe kind of way. And it's the same characters you've seen for 40 years. But, you know, I don't know. Or Midnight in Paris. I feel like it works on a similar level that like Midnight in Paris does. But it's uh, it's interesting that um, I mean, I'm not asking for other autobiography, but I think it's interesting to think about the way that Woody Allen might imagine himself as a director in this movie. And I think he imagines himself or Val Waxman is maybe a little bit more like a like a Kubrick or someone who like right. who swings big and takes risks and does intentionally incoherent things it it was interesting to hear all these people be like oh he's like so difficult to work with like to the point where like nothing gets done and like Woody Allen was the ultimate like something gets done for the last like 45 years right I mean he's like I mean he's doing he did like 50 40 50 years ago with like you know I feel like Noah Baumbach's now doing in the past like five years it's just like a movie every year for a reasonable budget and you put it in 25 theaters and you see how it does. Try you know? different hats on the same people and see what permutation works out the best. Right. And, you know, it hits and misses. And I feel like this one is not a home run by any means, you know. But I feel like it's a, it's definitely like a clean single to left. Mm. Just imagine, like, having gone through, like, 35 years of filmmaking and then yeah. being like... I'm blind. Like, I don't know. Like he had, if you look at his filmography leading up to that point, this movie is questioning, like, I think Woody Allen feels blind. Like what's funny now? Yeah. But okay. But do you, do you really, do you think that works as a metaphor? Because I found it mostly, um, I know the movie wanted it to be a metaphor, but it, for me, it was mostly kind of cheap playhouse farcical. Well, it's still in like that Woody Allen style. Like, I think the movie is not the movie's afraid to go dark enough to make it like a real hit. Yeah, because it's so consumed with being charming. Yeah, that it didn't really like focus on any like greater truth about Hollywood. And I think the ending's pretty much a cop out. Uh, not to spoil it, but dude directs a movie blind, so it's not very good. Um, <laughs> But then they release it in France and like the French think it's the next like great American cinema. 
So And to me, that's the most charming part of it, because it foreshadows what he does the next 15 years, which is just, just go to Europe. Yeah, just um, leave the country. And, and they just like make a couple movies in the UK, and then in France, and then in Spain, you know? Yeah. Um, I think I, I do think that the, the the big problem though is that I think there's a there's a reason that this is the last Woody Allen starring Woody Allen movie. I I just think he's too old. His his the classic stammering like goes to the point of doddering. Um, some of like that the scene with the with the sofa where the leading lady is hitting on him. Oh yeah, where uh, what's her name from uh, from White Collar. He he says, uh, the sofa. He says it seven. I don't need a, I don't need a throw a pillow. He says it seven times. <laughs> like there's some like it's it's stalling and and I think what happens when he I mean people will say over and over again and it, it's tiring but they're right that when you get these younger actors in to be sort of your Woody Allen mouthpieces yes they are always mouthpieces but the the atmosphere and the different looks are what make it so interesting. Uh, Kate right. Blanchett, Owen Wilson, Joaquin Phoenix. Um, well, when I, th- I think his, like, the good Woody Allen movies that have been made in the past 10 years, my theory is that if he casts people to be his mouthpiece against type, mm-hmm. it typically works out really well. Like, you've got Jonathan Reese Myers. Like, that d- dude is nothing like Woody Allen. No. Um, and then I, don't know have... if that's a, I don't know if that's a mouthpiece movie, though, though, because... That just seems that's more like I think it's like Woody Allen like using uh, using his best like his best pickup lines you know I think Owen Wilson has such a different brand of comedy that that's why Midnight in Paris really works and like Kate Blanchett is like a, such a serious actress that she really like brought a depth to it Yeah man I I don't think it's you say it's charming. I don't. I just don't find it fun at all, especially the turn. Because you didn't think it was fun. Wait, the turn being the blindness, like how the movie ends, or the blindness. The okay. blindness. Sorry. The the twist that the the tagline for the movie that doesn't happen till fifty minutes. It's just not fun. Like I, it's this it's this weird reward kind of for like thirty years of playing a hypochondriac, and right. uh, well, he's written a movie that he can star in. Yeah. Which... Like, what else is he going to do? I'm blind. You're psychosomatically blind. Uh, oh, no, it's psychosomatic. Uh, Sometimes that happens. No one must find out. I mean, I'm serious. I can't direct the picture. I'm blind. Have you seen some of the pictures out there? Also, I think if I can if I can pinpoint a little more why I don't think he works in this movie, it's hard to say where, like, the Woody Allen, like, style of character and delivery, like, turned into, like, really kind of really concrete persona but right. i don't think you no like think one... we're in caricature territory maybe that okay but, but i think the main signifier of that is that i don't think he doesn't have he doesn't have a diane keaton in this movie he doesn't have anyone who seems to be able to like relate in any sort right. of interpersonal way to like the Woody Allen that's on screen. Everyone like Tay Leone is everyone's either mimicking or playing really scared. There's no one who's going to get in his face or 
Um, about Treat Williams. I think Treat Williams is the only other actor who like matches Woody Allen in this movie, but he's only in the beginning and the end. But he's it, like, also playing like caricature, basically. Is that why it well, works? Well, yeah. I mean, like Woody like whispered in his ear, like you're a guy with a lot of money and like a big dick, and like that's his that's his role, and he just like saunters in and like you know like makes pe- like you know keeps everything in line and is kind of stupid and uh, then leaves. But he I've does s- it in such a great way. So yeah, no, I, I think you're right that Taylor pretty bad. Um, I thought that what's her name from uh, Will and Grace, who played his, his new girlfriend? Yeah, Deborah Messing was kind of like funny against type, kind of. I guess I just thought I saw that him as like work, like screwing around with like blue collar, lower class people in a way that like worked in Blue Jasmine, but like didn't really work here. But yeah, I think that um, the supporting cast. They try to stand up to him, but I think that's the weird thing about this movie is that anytime you have a supporting character who like stands up to him acting wise, they then just don't appear for the next 45 minutes. And so when people try to be really present in the scenes, it's like trying to be present with like someone who's going to do their thing and say their thing no matter what. And I know that's part of like all Woody Allen characters. Like they're not empathetic, like people having relationships with you, but like there's there's nothing to play off of there. He's just going to say what he's going to say, and you're going to talk at the same speed, hopefully. Well, it's funny, because, like, when there's that scene where he is directing that scene, mm-hmm. and, he like, the guy has the gun, like, which gun do you want me to use? And, like, cross left, I'll bump into him. Oh, you don't have to actually bump into me, kind of thing. Right. Uh, it's hard to, like, draw the line where it's, like, are these actors just frustrated at working with this fictional director that Woody Allen has written? Or are these actors frustrated with working with Woody Allen in this scene right now? Interesting. Yeah. I don't, it, you could definitely, it does it seem ways. like, like, I think you're right. Like some of the scenes you can tell that they're improv to us to an, a certain extent, you know, like there's the scene where um, he's blind and he's like sitting in the makeup chair and she comes in and she's not wearing the engagement ring. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole back and forth. It's all very like, I don't know, like not as well planned out as it probably should have been. Right. Like visually. Um, but then, you know, he's blind and that's the conceit of the movie. But I still think that, yeah, this, this is not a tight movie. No, it's not. Um, do we want to get to get to ratings and then and then talk about how it ties back to our theme maybe a little bit? Yeah. So I'm going to have to give this one. This is a critical reappraisal here. Years ago, I would have said like, great, great. Um, but I think it's for me the definition of bad good. OK, it's a bad, bad for me. OK, uh, but I, I can't say that that doesn't hurt, but. I don't think I've I don't think I've been mean I about it. I prepped you for this, buddy. What? I wasn't going to adjust my rating. I was just going to adjust my tone. Okay. Did I not adjust my tone? I can't convince enough? you. You didn't have a good time watching it. No, I really didn't. By uh, I really was out by I don't know an hour ten. Okay. Because I I just found I and I know that like like a director being blind late in his career like I I get the the oh, sub, you get it. the subtext or the supertext. But uh-huh. I found it to be like, kind of like a bad playhouse comedy turn, and the main thing oh, was I just thought it was it was charming Mr. Magooey. So no. Fine. Well, we can agree to disagree. Never bring up uh, the Hollywood ending again. Okay. 
No, I'm kidding. That's I'm I respect your position. And if I was coming to it cold, I probably would say bad, bad too. But I can't. I I bring I bring context to the table. I, I bring a backstory. Right. It's all right. So in terms of well, I feel like we already touched on this a little bit, but I feel like in terms of how it lets us into like real Hollywood. Like I said at the beginning, this is like charming, like probably what Hollywood was like in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I think it's interesting because it's interesting that Woody Allen would like portray himself or sort of himself this way as Val Waxman. But you have this guy who's like sort of like taking some shots at the studio system from like the vantage point of a director. The key, thi- the key thing is that like Woody Allen would never make a movie based on someone else's bad script. He writes every single thing. Um, and so it's, I think he finds it both interesting and funny, but also he's kind of like in the clear from where he can like take shots is like, Oh, I'm never the sort of person who's like in a position to deal with this sort of thing because I'm not a guy who takes on some studio acquisition. Well, what I also think is funny too, which Woody Allen like doesn't get about this day and age is that like the movie doesn't have any concept of celebrity. Oh, that's interesting. Like there's no like scene where people like come up to anybody, you know? Yeah. And like, there's never any real like egos in play. Like, I mean the actors kind of, but like the actors are sort of desperate. They're not super like, they're not hard to deal with. And I thought that could have been like an interesting place. The movie could have gone. Right. But really he's creating the chaos, not like some egotistical actors or something. So anyway, shall we move on to our third and final film? Yeah. 2000s state in Maine. state in Maine, the David uh, Mamet written and directed movie. Are we doing, are we doing two movies that you hold near and dear to your heart here? Yeah, we are. Wow, I don't know if we should have done that. Because you also didn't like State and Maine. That's not what I'm saying. I just think that's a dangerous recipe. Listen, man, if you can't kill your darlings, what are we all doing here? <laughs> um, but no, like This wh- movie, again, is like a sleepy TV. Or when I used to work at a video store, my buddy Alex and I would just like put on State and Maine because I think it's R, but it's not like a hard R. Um and we weren't allowed to play like really graphic movies uh, on the television at the video store while customers were there. So I've seen this movie a lot too, like in the background, Um, which is again, like one of the things that we're rating movies on, or at least I am. This is your movie. This is small town America. They want to close down Main Street. The question is, who owns the street? What's it about? It's about the quest for purity. I don't want to take my shirt off. They told me they had an old mill. It burnt down. How do I do a film called The Old Mill when I don't have an old mill? Well, first you got to change the title. Yeah, 2000, David Mamet, uh, written and directed by. Uh, it has a real cast of pretty A-list people in it. The cast is great. Yeah, it's got uh, PSH, it's got Alec Baldwin, it's got um, Carrie Bradshaw, it's got um, <laughs> Julia the Stiles. guy, Julia Stiles, the guy from uh, all the uh, Marvel movies. Oh, the, uh, Craig, or whatever his name is. The yeah, guy who plays, he's in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he's the lead the there. The bald guy. Yeah. Uh, William H. Macy. Oh, Yeah. Um, even some great theater people. You have um, uh, Patty Lapone is the uh-huh. mayor's wife, and the mayor I recognized from The Sting, 
he plays Snyder, who beats the oh, hell yeah. out of uh, Robert Redford in The Sting, but he's about 150 pounds heavier in a century gone here. And then, so basically the setup of this movie is uh, this film crew shows up in New England uh, in a very small town, uh, Waterford, Vermont. Vermont. Yep. Waterford, Vermont, to shoot a movie called The Old Mill. <laughs> and they, they it used to be in New Hampshire where they like built an old mill and were ready to shoot the old mill there. But for some reason they had to leave New Hampshire very quickly and find another town with an old mill because that's the name of the movie and they don't have any more money to build another old mill. Right. And then the movie takes off and it's basically about how these Hollywood people, um, unlike Woody Allen's movie, this movie is like mostly all about egos Mm-hmm. Um, and how they deal with these charming country folk who yeah. live in Waterford, Vermont. I think the probably one of the great strengths of this movie is I do love I love how it comes out of the gates. Um, it's oh, got, it comes out hot. It's got some great energy. Um, it's got some great energy. The worst thing about this movie that I will grant you is the fact that like David Mamet it, as is at his mammotist with the dialogue. I kind of I didn't I didn't mind it when the pacing sustained right. the chippiness. But that kind of dialogue does only works when people are like yelling at each other and not when they're having like intimate moments. Right. And like so when you get to the more intimate moments of this movie, the last half. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit grating. But the, I think the movie written like the the structure of the movie is like brilliant. Yes. Or it's I would at least agree. ambitious. The, the what they set out to do with this movie, which whole, seems yeah. at its, I mean, at its core, is it could have been a play. Like it's a very simple. Story. You don't say. It's a very simple story, self-contained mostly in this hotel in this small town that they've rented. Right. Or right in front of the hotel. And t- to your point, I do think that this structure is the greatest thing about it because what you have is like as as hijinks ensue as they start to mingle with all these various townspeople who either kind of detest them being there or have stars in their eyes because of the Hollywood types in their sleepy little town. Um, You have the people extrapolate their roles on the movie set into the events of the movie. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the uh, playwright who's like, I don't know, you could say he's like sort of selling out. He's not happy. I don't think that he's part of this in some way, but he also has severe, right. he also has severe writer's block. Um, right. But and he also wrote this, he's coming off of this like Broadway hit drama called Anguish. Anguish. <laughs> <laughs> but as events start to transpire in real life, you have Macy trying to direct everything and Pamer like trying to open back doors and like make sure that everything goes off without a hitch. You right. have Baldwin who's sort of like, uh, the tabloid trying figures. to have sex with every fourteen-year-old girl. Yeah, who at the center of it, um, when yeah, when the floor falls out, like he's the star of of that. But then yeah. you you do sort of have Seymour Hoffman like kind of like writing it because like you know uh, his his testimony or decisions ultimately kind of like write the ending. And I, I right. think I think that all well, the little what's so brilliant about how this movie is constructed is because right. like. What he ultimately comes to in the fake movie, The Old Mill, 
is that the movie is about second chances. Mm -hmm. And if you think about every major plot point in the movie, the movie itself is about second chances. Yes. Like even from scene to scene, it's about second chances. Yeah. Like, like sometimes characters will exit and then come back, (laughs) you know, or someone will start to say something and then just won't. And then the fact that like everything lines up so beautifully that they have that courtroom built for the trial at the end. Uh huh. And the fact that, like, the people in the local production are saying the same things about learning their lines as the people in the Hollywood production are. Right. Well, I'll make my case at the end, but I feel like that plays into how much I like this movie is the fact that it's so neatly tied up. Yeah, it is super neat. And that's, yeah, the construction is the strength of it because then what I think suffers, which ultimately sort of, um, becomes the negative thing that I have to say about it is that I think it's so built around this beautiful fastidious outline that once the air starts to come out of the room a little bit and like the people snapping at each other aren't hanging out all the time the characters like unfortunately kind of like don't develop in the ways you want them or at least the ways that I want them and I'm specifically talking about like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is sort of like he's the human person or like the, he's the person who has like a chance to redeem himself and fall in love with the bookstore owner in this in this little town. But I don't I think she she kind of turns out to not really amount to being a person. And then he sort of like just carries this lesson. I think on his the shoulders. Achilles heel of this film is how bad Rebecca Pigeon is. Um, as the like local town bookseller slash love interests, and Rebecca Pigeon is David Mamet's wife. Oh, really? So that should, so that should be known. Um, so we got a little Kate Capshaw Temple of Doom thing going on here. I I think that's exactly what we have. Like she does it like okay enough job, but I feel like this movie doesn't have. I mean, and the big problem is that the movie doesn't have like a main narrative you want to hang with. Yeah. It has a lot of, like, little narratives, but ultimately, like, I I don't know. You need, like, a protagonist or, like, a thing you want to have happen for someone. Right. Well, she's not great, but then, I don't know, that makes me wonder if, like, do you if you think, like, Mamet was, like, wary about developing that character in some way. Because you need her to be developed because she's the one that Hoffman's going to connect with to be a real person in the face of all this Hollywood bullshit. And that doesn't happen, and that's what you're waiting for the whole time. Right. Well, I also don't really understand her character. Having seen the beginning of this movie, you know, a dozen, two dozen times. Sure. It doesn't really, like, she doesn't make sense to me as a character. And again, I think that's one of the problems, like, the big problems with the movie. Um, To have so many things tie up, she has to do a lot of, like, nonsense things. Mm -hmm. Like, she's been dating this guy for, like, she's been dating the guy from uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for, like, four or five years. Yeah. And then she just breaks up with them like the second day she meets because the whole thing takes place over the course of four days. Right. So by the end of the four days, she's or by the end of the first day, she's broken up with the fiance and is now like courting Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Which is kind of like a, a, a reach. And the fact that she doesn't really have any wants. Yeah. Baldwin. We talk about Baldwin, though. He's Baldwin great was, in like Baldwin one was of great. And unashamed in one of the last skinny Baldwin roles we'll ever see. Right. I just love, like, just, he comes in hot with, what is it, Chucky? With an I-E? Yeah. Chuck? 
Chucky. What's your favorite sport? You got any hobbies, Chuck? Baseball. Baseball. Ten second pause. <laughs> That's the national sport. That was one of the strangest, funniest moments. In or the when movie. he gets that, he crashes this car as basically the climax of the film, or like yeah. the big like lead up to the climax. And he gets out, and he looks at Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's witnessed this car crash. And he goes, well, that happened. <laughs> and you want to hear the kicker? You got a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a real kind of devious airhead, even though those words shouldn't yeah. really go together. But that's kind of how he is. Well, that's what I think. We're getting to the, the key question of the, the three films. I think this movie is, like, so cynical, but in such a, like, not cynical way. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. L- like, this movie is so, like, unapologetic for the fact that this guy's a child molester. Right. You know? And, like, the things that happen in this movie are, like, horrible. And right. the way they treat each other is, like, horrible. Right. And, like, the emotional damage they're probably doing to each other is, like, horrible. And the moral choices are horrible. But it's it's all in good fun. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, so I feel like in that way, I feel like it shows us more Hollywood than certainly Hollywood ending does. For me, though, this movie is good bad because i really admired um all the different uh stand-ins and analogs and things for all for all the different people and 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 how nicely it wrapped up but same sort of thing by like the last hour i was like waiting for these yeah i was bored i was waiting for these characters to connect beyond the sort of like literary structuralist pieces they were supposed to play and that didn't right yeah Interesting. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, but I think I, I feel like I feel the opposite about the movie um, that I found the structuralism of it, the entertaining part. And just like, you know, I mean, I feel like it's a movie. I mean, again, it's another comedy of errors. These are basically all comedies of errors. They are, um, you know, and just like something like, uh, you know, what's the. Uh, noises off or something like that. It's just in that canon of, you know, very watchable, but ultimately like plot driven things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pieces of film. So I don't know. I'm going to have to give it bad. Good. It takes all kinds. It, is that what it takes? I always wondered what it took. <laughs> Well, sir. A pleasure as always. And um, to you. I wish you the best of luck in your new life. Thank you. I hope, I hope the next uh, couple days go well for you. Describing it that way makes me very uncomfortable, but thank you. People should follow us on, uh, on the tweets. Yes. Uh, at Be Real Guys. And yes. uh, email us at Be Real Guys. Or it's just Be Real Guys at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, do you check that email account? I it, don't. It forwards to mine, so no one's been sending anything. But come on, send something. Anyway, buddy, it's been a pleasure. I'll see you next time. See you, man. Bye. <laughs>